Our text, as from our scripture reading, is from 2 Timothy chapter 2. So if you'd turn there again in your Bibles to the second chapter of 2 Timothy, again, page 1191, if you're using one of our pew Bibles there in front of you. We all understand fatherhood, as we all have earthly fathers. And yet, with each of these, as good as they may be, we know that they are imperfect. But we have a heavenly Father who is perfect. So as we consider the degrees of fatherhood that exists and the ways in which we each, as fathers, are trying to achieve success and to come to a point where we would honor our Heavenly Father and to live our lives as He has shown us, the question becomes, how do we come across that chasm between the reality of that which we live as earthly fathers and the perfect picture God has given to us? And how do we attain greater levels of success? How do we ultimately become more like our ultimate and perfect Heavenly Father? Well, the answer to that question lies in our text today. And this message is not just for fathers, because each wife, each daughter, each son, contribute to helping fathers to be more biblical and more like our Heavenly Father. So our text today is perfectly suited to fathers and to all who have fathers. Our text is also most appropriate as it comes as an exhortation from a father to a son. And this is where our title for our morning message comes from, a fatherly exhortation. A fatherly exhortation. 2 Timothy 2 is our text. We've already read that. And so let's consider a few components of this wonderful section of Scripture as we come to understand God's fatherly exhortation to us as fathers. We see straight away the fatherly component of our text as our author, the Apostle Paul, addresses the letter's recipient, Timothy, as my son, in verse 1. You, therefore, my son. Paul is not Timothy's earthly father, but sees him as his spiritual son. And so also does Timothy see Paul as his spiritual father. Paul has tutored and nurtured young Timothy for almost 15 years. Paul began to work with Timothy back in Acts chapter 16, that which occurred around 49 AD. And now this, the last letter which Paul will write, the last of his life before his death and martyrdom, and this letter dated around AD 66. So now for 15 years, Paul has been ministering to and tutoring Timothy as his spiritual son in the faith. And the exhortation portion of a fatherly exhortation comes in our text through several imperative verbs in this chapter. Now, we recognize that those verbs are commands. And although there are several of them in our chapter, I've boiled this down to eight fatherly exhortations. You'll see those in your outline there in your bulletins. Eight fatherly exhortations. And the first exhortation that we come to is in verse 1. And Paul tells his 
young spiritual son, Timothy, to be strong. And this is our first point. Be strong. Paul's first exhortation here helps us to understand this critical component, which really is overarching for all of the chapter. Now, when we hear this instruction about being strong in our mindset, we might quickly think of physical strength or perhaps mental or emotional strength. But that is in the the natural human expectation of this component. And and we aren't talking about uh, the strength of Arnold that could lift uh, the moon. And we aren't talking about the emotional uh, strength of Dr. Phil. And I trust that you're not going there for any of your emotional strength. But the strength that Paul is telling Timothy to have is spiritual strength. As Timothy's spiritual father... He is telling him that he must be strong in his walk with the Lord. And this is what we would expect from Paul. This is the same exhortation that Paul admonishes the Ephesians with near the end of his letter to them in Ephesians 6.10. And in that text, in Ephesians 6 and 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So the spiritual component of that is not that which we generate in ourselves. But it is that which comes from God and from His might. And in verse 1 of our text, it is specifically identified as the strength which is in grace. That being the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Now, we know that grace is God's unmerited favor. That He gives us things which we do not deserve, nor which we could or would ever earn on our own. Essentially, this applies to most things in our lives when we consider it. Because when we understand all that God has given us, when we understand the blessings that are ours, that we live in a society that is of the most affluent of all time, we see that we have been given a tremendous number of gifts. And those are from God for our ability to earn, our ability to think. All of these things come from God. However, that is God's common grace or his general grace. That is his grace that he gives to all men. But what we're talking about here is a different component. This particular element of grace is God's special grace. This is his saving grace. And and that is the grace that he addresses as that which is in Christ Jesus in verse 1. Jesus is the one who is the dispenser of all grace grace. In John 1, 17, we see that grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. So even the understanding of what grace is, our ability to comprehend that it is a gift from God which we are completely undeserving, that realization comes through Christ. In Romans three twenty four, it tells us that Jesus's grace is that by which we are justified which we are made right, and which we are seen as forgiven in God's sight because of the work of Christ. In 2 Thessalonians 2.16, it says Jesus loved us and has given us eternal comfort and hope by grace. So the fact that we understand heaven, that we understand what awaits the believer— is a measure of God's grace to us. It is a measure of God's love 
to us. And it is there that we have our hope. Not a hope as the world hopes, that which is fleeting or lacking or may come to fruition, but the reality of eternity that awaits those who are his children. And in Acts 15.11, grace is described as this. Acts 15.11 says, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, in the same way as they are also. It is our very salvation that comes as an act of God's grace. Now, we're not surprised by that, as we know that in Ephesians 2.8, it tells us that for by grace we have been saved through faith. It is not our work, lest anyone may boast. That is a gift that God has given to us. We don't come to God, we don't choose God, but it is God by His grace who has sought us out and who has drawn us to Himself. Salvation is the ultimate expression of that grace. And Jesus gave the ultimate gift of eternal life, which we could never earn nor deserve as He suffered on the cross of Calvary, as we just sang in that beautiful song. Being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus is being strong in our faith. It is realizing the sacrifice that Christ has made. Understanding that all that we have and all that we are comes from that which he has given us. And that it is a living and abiding in the tenets of God's word as a result of the understanding of the grace that he's provided. When we think of this kind of strength, you know, I'm reminded of uh, shortly after I came to know the Lord, I had uh, a Christian t-shirt. Perhaps, you know, those were much more popular, it seems, and perhaps I was much less spiritual and so wore them more back in the uh, uh, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, a lot of those t-shirts replicated different companies. There were Coca-Cola t-shirts and various different things. And this particular one was one that replicated Gold's Gym. But instead of Gold's Gym, it said the Lord's Gym. And it had a picture of a man doing a push-up, and on his back was a cross. And across the bar of the cross, it said, the sins of the world. And then below it was the title, Bench Press This. On the back, His Pain, Your Gain. This is the reality of the cross. This is the reality of the grace of God that he has carried all of the burden, all of the sin, all that we do each and every day. And that never could we do anything to merit forgiveness of that. Never could we do anything that these sins have been taken and lifted off of us and placed onto him. But that is the grace of Christ. That is the glory of the cross. And it is this truth which Paul first tells Timothy to be strong in. This is the first fatherly exhortation, be strong. And our second follows in verse 2, and I've titled it, Be a Supplier. Be a Supplier. Now, we understand the role of a father as the supplier of the needs of the home and making provision for the family. We've, in fact, been talking much on provision in our Wednesday night Bible study from Philippians chapter 4. And Paul in Philippians 4 is talking about financial provision. Only it isn't a financial provision that's being discussed here. The things which are to be supplied are teachings. 
Paul says in verse 2 that it is the things which you heard from me. This isn't primarily Paul's personal exhortation to Timothy either, but it is that which he heard in the presence of many witnesses. It is Paul's continuous teaching on Christ. It is Paul's continuous proclamation of that which he received in the personal and oral revelations and prophecies from Christ himself and through his understanding and his much broadened and eyes wide open understanding that he received when he was saved. The man who was the Pharisee, who knew the Old Testament full well, all of a sudden recognized that all of that which he had studied all pointed to Christ. And so you can imagine that the overflowing nature of his teachings about Christ were just abundant as they focused on all of the power of his Old Testament knowledge. And these teachings, Timothy is to entrust to other faithful men. Those who will also teach them the last phrase in verse 2, further confirming the subject of Paul's public teaching. He says, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is that power of the gospel that Paul is continuing to pour into all who will hear, and particularly into Timothy. Paul further describes that which he is, has entrusted to Timothy back in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. In 1 Timothy 1 and 18, Paul says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Those prophecies previously made are all of the power of the Old Testament scriptures. We're going to see this referred to over and over again, and we cannot miss it, beloved. The power and the necessity for us to know the Old Testament and to realize that it points to Christ. And it continues to show that from the beginning of time, God has had one plan, and that was Christ. And Paul is telling Timothy to be a supplier of this teaching. Be the one who is carrying forward the vital message of this truth in which he's been entrusted. Notice that we see a progression already. Once he is strong in the grace of salvation, that is, once he is settled and secured and founded on the power of the rock of Christ, then he is to carry forward and to teach others also, to carry it to faithful men. Men, this is what it means to be a supplier. This is what it must be to our families. This is what it must be to our children they too must be those who are strong in the grace which is in Christ, in his grace in salvation. And then we must entrust them to the faithful word so that they too might continue to teach. It is so critical for us to understand that we are the ones who bring this truth within our families. The family is such a vital unit in the carrying forward of the gospel of Christ. And we as a church family in the same light must be those who are passing along these teachings so that others may teach as well. Well, our third point then in verse 3 is to be self-sacrificing. To be self-sacrificing. Paul begins verse 3 by saying, Suffer hardship with me. 
He's calling Timothy to be self-sacrificing of his own comfort. Paul uses the, the same command in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 8, just a few verses earlier. In 2 Timothy 1.8, he writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, the prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now that Timothy is strong in that foundation, now that he is carrying forward those teachings, the next thing that's going to come is suffering. The next thing that's going to come is persecution. Because people are not going to be happy to hear all of these teachings that God has brought forward. Because amidst the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the daunting message of the wrath of God, which will come upon unbelievers. And they're not going to want to hear that. And so there's going to be persecution. And Paul is suffering, and Jesus suffered, and all believers will suffer. So Paul further defines the suffering because this is such a big issue and none of us like it. And we remember when we went through it in Hebrews and talked about those elements of suffering. So again, Paul spends some extra time telling Timothy about what this suffering is going to look like. And he illustrates it using three figures, that of a soldier, an athlete, and that of a farmer. In verse 4, he talks about the illustration of a soldier. The soldier who is out there giving his life, prepared to sacrifice it all. And he says, he doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life. He's not running around and dealing with all of the particular issues of the society at large. He has a job to do. He has been brought forward by a commander to carry out the orders that have been given to him. And he does not get in entangled in all of the affairs of everyday life so that it drags him back and he is unable to carry forth his mission. No, that's not at all what he does because he wants to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So when we think about our suffering and we think about one who is placing his life on the front lines and being prepared to sacrifice himself, the point is to please the one who enlisted us who is our God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. After the soldier, he takes us to the description of an athlete in verse 5. And he says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So there are things which we must and those which we must not do as we are engaged in this battle. As the suffering is coming upon us, as we are standing firm, as we are carrying forth the gospel, there are those elements by which we must compete. There are the rules that we must carry forward. And these are the rules of God's word. These are the things which we must be obeying and which we must be living out in our lives. The third illustration he gives us is of the farmer. And notice in verse 6, he calls him the hard-working farmer. This, means, this word means to toil to the point of exhaustion. When we take upon the yoke of Christ, it is not something that we are going to quickly turn back from. The Lord himself illustrated in the parable of the man who came to Christ and wanted to follow him, but wanted to go back and to bury his father. He says, let the dead bury themselves. You come and follow me. When we put our hand to the plow to carry forth, to 
hoe a row for Christ, we must stay to it. Men, we must stay focused. We must stay moving ahead in the task to which we've been called. And it is a hard task. It is a laborious task. But notice, it is a task with reward in verse 6. For the farmer who so toils is able to share in part of that produce. What an incredible picture this paints for us. These three examples are all being self-sacrificing. So in suffering, there is only one to serve, and it is our commander, Jesus Christ. And as we suffer, and this life, and the way that we live it, we must do it according to God's rules. But we also receive a share of the reward for which we labor. Look at the magnitude of what God gives to us. Think about the gifts and the blessings, the joy, the peace, and the hope that God has given to us for the labor that we put forth. And our labors are so puny alongside of what God has done. And yet God rewards us so abundantly, gives us such rich gifts, gives us a wonderful body to worship and fellowship with, rich hymns of praise to sing that lift our soul and help us to glory in the truth of Christ. These are all the great gifts, and they go on and on and on. These are the reward of the labor of the hardworking farmer. Our fourth point follows in verse 7. I've titled it, Be Scrutinizing. Be Scrutinizing. Look at verse 7 with me. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This verse serves as a transition. Paul is exhorting Timothy to consider all that he's just said. He's already dumped a mountain of teaching upon him. As he's told him to be strong and to stand fast. As he's told him that he must be a supplier and entrust these things to faithful men. And how he is one who must be self-sacrificing. So now he says, consider all that, Timothy. Consider all that I have just told you. Carefully examine all of these details. Now, this word means to think about, to ponder. And there's going to be a lot of words that reflect this mental exercise that must go on as we carry forth in our faith. We're going to see other words in our text this morning that repeat the same idea of considering or thinking. Now, we almost see a cyclical component in this chapter and its various themes where Paul will bring something up and then he'll move on and then he'll come back to it because it's so important that we learn it. It's so important that we hear the repetition and that we don't allow these things to move beyond us. And Paul tells Timothy that the Lord will give him understanding in all these things. Paul's fatherly exhortation for Timothy is to be scrutinizing, to think carefully and to think deeply and to bring to mind all that Paul has taught him over 15 years. Think of those in your life who have been the spiritual mentors that God has given you. Think about the wonderful lessons that they taught you. Picture their face. Think about the wisdom that they sought to bring forward as they desired to see you grow in your most holy faith, as they sought to see you carry forth this powerful word that they had been given and which they were seeking to be faithful to pass along. 
And so Paul says, think carefully, Timothy, over all of these 15 years. And that the Lord will bring understanding in all these matters. This was also Jesus' encouragement to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. He knew this was going to throw them completely sideways. When he was captured, when he went through the illegal trials both the Jewish and the Roman, and was finally crucified and killed, that they were going to go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? And so in John 14, 26, Jesus said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. What an encouragement is it for us to be brought to remember the power of what Christ has done. His perfect picture. We, we are encouraged as we hear his word. We are encouraged as we read his word. We are encouraged as we sing his praises and are brought to remembrance all the power of his word. And beloved, it is the Holy Spirit that is doing that. As fathers, this is exactly what we must desire for our children. That all that we would teach them, that they would scrutinize it carefully. And then that God would illumine all of these details. And that he would take our children and the understanding that he would give them, and that he would help them to teach others and to go far beyond that which we have achieved to. And that we would associate divine truth with every detail of all that went on. You know, isn't this the way that God's Word is? Isn't this how we understand the power of the Spirit working in us? Ever been reading along in a verse of Scripture that was very familiar to you, and all of a sudden you had that aha moment? Just like, I have never seen that in there before. That is the Holy Spirit. That is God bringing to you the understanding of all things. That is God opening your eyes up to the beauty and power of his word. What a glorious picture it is for us to understand these epiphanies because it is not us. It is not some amazing function of our minds by which we remember something long ago. It's God's spirit stirring in us striking us, helping us to see that there are yet greater nuances to his powerful word. So he tells young Timothy to be strong, to be a supplier, to be self-sacrificing, to be scrutinizing, and fifth, to be stirred up, to be stirred up. Our fifth point has two components, that of thought and of action. The first is by way of thought. And notice that our idea of thinking comes again in verse 8 of our text, where he says, remember Jesus Christ. So our, our thought of, of memory and, and of a cognitive process is again brought to light. And he's telling Timothy, be stirred up in thought. The fatherly exhortation in verse 8 is, remember Jesus Christ. It is Christ that must be continually brought to mind. Beloved, our focus must always be on our Lord. And why does Timothy, or why does Paul bring this up to Timothy? There have been so many exhortations already. We began the chapter in verse 1, focusing on Christ and the grace of salvation, which comes through him. 
And yet he brings back up again the need to focus on Christ. Why? Because we lose focus. Because we so quickly get off track. We so quickly get caught up in the world and all that's before us. And he says, no, keep your focus. Remember Jesus Christ. And it is so easy for us not to. Colossians 3.1 tells us this same wonderful message where it says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's what we must do. We must keep looking up. We must keep recognizing that God in heaven has Christ seated at his right hand, and that is our focus. That is our eternity. That is our future. That is our hope. Not this world. We're reminded in 1 John 2.15, are we not? That we are not to love this present world. Because all that is in this world, as he says in verse 16 of 1 Timothy or 1 John 2, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, we're to have no part in that. No, our focus is to be on heavenly things. We are to be looking up. We are to be remembering Jesus Christ. And notice what about him we're to remember in verse 8. Him resurrected from the dead. This is the central tenet of the gospel. This is the unique element of Christianity. There are, there are thousands of religions. There's only one that has a living and resurrected Savior. This is the critical component of the gospel. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 continued to bring forth this importance. In fact, he even said that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, that our faith is in vain. And we are most to be pitied. In fact, we may even be in danger of blaspheming God if indeed Christ has not been raised from the dead, that which we proclaim. This is, this is the critical element because it is through Christ's resurrection that we too will be raised. This is the hope of heaven. And so we hold firmly to it. And then notice next that we're also to remember in verse 8, him as the descendant of David. Now, you read this, and I don't know about you, but it kind of stops me right in my tracks. Remember Jesus Christ's powerful command. Remember him resurrected from the dead, the central tenet of Christianity, and that by which we hold firmly to as believers. And then remember him as a descendant of David. I read that and I go, okay, that's important. I, I might have been tempted to put something like his sinless life next, or his vicarious substitutionary death or his ascension? But no. Paul brought forward his descent from the line of David. Why is that? Because it confirms the massive number of Old Testament prophecies. It connects us back to the Old Testament where over and over again, Christ was the one coming from the line of David. It confirms the kingly line promise in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel. It confirms the, the kingly line promise from Deuteronomy. It confirms Jacob's prophecy of the one coming from the tribe of Judah. And we could go on and on about the Old Testament fulfillment of David. This confirms the Old Testament itself. 
he again reinforces how important it is for us to know all of this word, not just the back half. All of these are according, as he says, to his gospel in verse 8. That is, according to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and all of the Old Testament. All of this is the gospel. It's all been pointing forward to the one who would come to save man from his sins. All the way back from Genesis 3, where God said that he would send one forth who would crush the head of his enemy. And throughout time, all have wondered, who would this be? Who from the line of Seth would come forward as the one who would crush Satan? The one who deceived Eve and whom Adam fell willingly to. And throughout it, we see that it is Christ. It is all him. It is the understanding that we are sinners and unable to save ourselves in the Old Testament is a perfect picture of that. Because Israel fails and they fail and they fail and Sometimes that's our life too. We fail and we fail and we fail. But we cannot worry that there is no hope because indeed the Old Testament points to that coming Messiah. And it is so vital for us to know it. It is for these that Paul is imprisoned in verse 9. And he says, remember these, Timothy, because for these I am in chains. How powerful is this message? If Paul didn't believe it, do you think that he would allow himself to continue in this prison? He could have a number of times. We go back through the book of Acts. He could have extracted himself, but he did not because he understood he needed to remain faithful. He understood that God told him that he must preach the gospel in Rome. And he was all about that obedience. Additionally to this, Paul is enduring all these in verse 10, and he says, because of these things and for this reason, I endure all of it. It's all worth it for the gospel because he's seeing the Lord delineate those whom he has chosen to salvation in verse 10. What an incredible picture that is. Look around you, beloved. Look around you at those that are also chosen by God. Those who are the elect. Fathers, consider your wives. Consider your children whom the Lord has saved. Whatever hardship we might suffer, is it not worth it? Is there anything of greater value than to look around and see the Lord's hand continuing to bring men as he has you and as he has me from darkness to light? That's overwhelming. I can't believe that God has saved me. And yet we all share that common reality, those of us that know Christ as our Savior. And by the way, this pales in comparison to Paul and Timothy's hardships that they might suffer. And their hardships are a lot more significant than ours. It's unlikely that any of us will be martyred in the fashion which tradition tells us Paul was or any of the apostles. Well, we see the hand of the Lord in this house. And beloved, we see the hand of the Lord in our own homes and families. And we see those destined for eternal glory, as verse 10 concludes. Verse 11 to 13 becomes a crescendo on what we've just looked at. That is, to be stirred up in thought, where it says, 
it is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Verse 11 is proclaiming that this is a trustworthy statement. As we're to be stirred up in thought, we have this trustworthy assurance of the faith that has been shown to us. And the first part of this faithful saying is that our participation in Christ's death, that is, if we die with him, that it is a faithful assurance that we will be with him in the end. This is, this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. If we die with him, we will live with him. It's not a maybe. It's an absolute assurity that whatever goes on in our lives, if we are faithful and if we carry on with him, that we will live with him forever. And so also the beginning of verse 12, where he says that if we endure, we will also reign with him. It's the same component. It's just a bigger picture that, that not only will we live with him, but we will reign, that we will have a role at, in a kingly fashion in heaven. What amazing privileges are given to us. But then verse 12 makes a radical U-turn. It's like you're on one of those roller coasters that goes, you know, not super fast, but all of a sudden it has a hard U-turn and you think you're going to get flung out. Well, that's what we see in the middle of verse 12. And it says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Now this, beloved, this is a verse that often is misconstrued. People think this is a one-time disavowal or an act of disobedience. It is not. This is the one who is apostate and who is not a child of God. Not one of the ones who is chosen in verse 10. The one who faces the eternal denial of Christ in Matthew 10, 33, where he says, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 13 concludes this faithful saying with the, the parallel of the second half. And it says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Again, this act of faithless, as Dr. MacArthur notes, refers to the lack of saving faith, not to weak or struggling faith, but to those who are without faith. Unbelievers will ultimately deny Christ because their faith was not genuine, end quote. And all of this is true because God cannot deny himself. How often are we watching on TV, we're watching a sporting event, and we see the sign at the end of the goalposts, John three sixteen. Well, I, I know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. We go, that is so great. And it is great. But we lose sight of the context. Stephen even mentioned in his message time before last about the forgotten verse of John 3.17. <laughs> and we often do forget that. And we also forget John 3.18. And John 3.18 gives us the other side uh, of this picture, and it is a difficult one. And it says, John 3.18, He who believes in him is not judged. More good news. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
God is faithful, beloved. He will save those who come to himself. He will by no means cast any out who come to him. But those who do not come, those who deny him, those who are faithless, he will deny them. They will be judged because that is the only way that God is faithful. That is the only way that he is righteous and that his judgments are all good and perfect and pure. Well, this is to be stirred up in thought. Now in verse 14, we're stirred up in action where it says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Remembering in verse 8 is the thought side of being stirred up. Now reminding others, this is the action side. This is taking that which you remember and telling others about it, taking action in this fashion. So Timothy is to remind them of, this, of these elements. And there are two things that he's remind them of. First, it says he's to remind them of these things. All that he's just covered. All the power of God in salvation. All the wrath of God in judgment. And all of the beauty of the gospel before. So he's to remind them of these things. But as he brings the truth of the gospel and of Christ raised, of those that are chosen in eternal glory, he's also to remind them not to wrangle about words in verse 14. This, this phrase means not to argue with false teachers and unbelievers who use human reason to debate against God's word. This is useless and dangerous, he says. Because the reason that this is dangerous is because arguing with these individuals gives the appearance of credibility to their argument, which has no credibility. As the idea of thinking is repeated in verse 7 and 8, we see this, we'll see the same idea of needless debate brought up again shortly as well. So Timothy is to be stirred up both in thought and in action. Our sixth fatherly exhortation in verse 15 is to be steadfast. This is our familiar Awana verse. We love the Awana program. I'm so thankful for all of you that minister in it and know you kids that are participants love it. And, and what does Awana stand for? Approved workmen are not ashamed. And that's what our verse tells us in verse 15. The reason is because they rightly handle God's word. Being an approved workman, it takes work. It doesn't just happen. This is what the word workman insinuates. This is what it means to be steadfast, to continue to show yourself approved, to continue to study the scriptures and to work so as to be an approved workman so that you're continually handling the word of God in an accurate manner. You know, some think that, well, after a man has preached for 10 or 15 or 20 years, you've pretty much got it. You pretty much understand God's word, and you really don't need to study it much anymore. But that is never the case. Because just as we talked about that aha moment in God's word that happens to us as we read, it happens even more as we study 
and we see more and more of the depth of God's Word because it is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. So we must continually be those who are striving to understand. The approved workman must be steadfast, always working to understand and handle the Word of God. Our seventh exhortation is in verse 16. Be certain in speech. Look at verse 16 with me. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. A fatherly exhortation also includes great care in your speech. Be certain in your speech. It means to avoid this worldly chatter, that which is useless and empty. And the reason that it only does so is because it just leads to ungodliness. There is, there is no profit in this. And this is now the second admonition regarding idle speech. We saw the first back in verse 14. And in verse 17, he says, not only does this lead to ungodliness, but it's like, it's like gangrene. It's like an infection in your body that if it's left untreated, it will just continue to eat up the limbs until it has consumed all of the flesh. And he gives us examples of verse 17 of men who are like this. And what have they done? Verse 18 says they've gone astray from the truth and they have stated that the resurrection has already happened which has not yet happened. They're leading people astray. They are wrangling about words. They are those who are full of worldly and empty chatter that only leads to ungodliness. And they lead people astray. Verse 19 and 21 through 21 confirm that God knows those who are his own and, and that those who are are to avoid this kind of wickedness. And he illustrates this by the picture of vessels in the house. And, and in that day and age, everything within the house that was brought in had to be carried out. Much like many of our camping conditions in our world today. You, you pack it in, you pack it out, whatever it may be. And so also here we have these vessels which are for honorable uses and those which are for dishonorable uses. And those who are the Lord's cleanse themselves and show themselves to be ready for this work. They show themselves as those who are not caught up in this worldly or empty chatter. These things which just lead to further ungodliness. Be strong, be a supplier, be self-sacrificing, be scrutinizing, be stirred up and be steadfast and be certain in your speech. And now our eighth fatherly exhortation is to be shrewd. To be shrewd. And as our fifth point, stirred up, had two parts, that of thought and action, so also does our last point to, of being shrewd. And in verse 22, we see the element of action where it says, now flee from youthful lusts. This is to be shrewd in action. And, and the action is to flee. It is to run from. This isn't a passive, oh, I'm going to turn my head. I'm going to think of something else. It physically means to run from something. It isn't changing your browser page. It isn't flipping the channel. It is removing yourself from these youthful lusts. You know, I, I know of a, a, a pastor who was a, a younger man and was speaking at a conference and was staying in a hotel. 
and he was working and preparing for his messages the next day, and he ordered room service. And as the room service attendant came, it was uh, a young woman who began making advances towards him as she brought the food in. And it was very clear what was going on. He ran out of the room, left her standing there, and just ran out of the room. That's what's being spoken about here. That's how we have to deal with these useful lusts. And they come upon us at any age. This isn't just for the young. Yes, it affects certainly those who are young, but it affects all of us as well. And that from which one is to flee, again, are these useful lusts. It's, it's what we discussed actually Friday night at the Gibson's home in the, the upper room connections. And we talked about Proverbs 5. And we talked about these elements that are these youthful lusts. We, we talked about, and Tom mentioned for us, these ideas of, of immorality, by, of course, which we're drawn in. He talked about this desire for wealth, by which we are also drawn in. These things which are sweet like honey, and they allure us, but which they are bitter as wormwood and result in death. So also the elements of pride and jealousy, self-assertiveness or an argumentative spirit, as one commentator notes. These are the things that are the youthful lust from which we must flee. And rather, we're to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. We're to pursue a, a right living. We're to, we're to pursue God's word and seeking that our lives would have no error or fault in it as related to this word. We are to seek faith, a deeper understanding of God's word and sharing that word with all that we'd come in contact with. We are to be seeking love, to be seeking to show the agape love of God that he has shown to us. And we are to be seeking peace, that glorious provision from our Father in heaven. And all of this with other believers. That is those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. So this is what it means to be shrewd in action. And in verse 23, one is to be shrewd in thought, where it says, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Again, we have our idea of think. To speculate is to think. And Paul is telling Timothy not even to think on these things, for they produce quarrels. This now, the third exhortation against argumentative interactions. And he says, don't even entertain them. Don't even speculate about them. Don't even think about these things. For believers are not to be quarrelsome in verse 24. So if these speculations or thoughts make you such that they come into your path, you're not even to entertain the consideration Rather than engaging these speculations of unbelievers, it tells us that we're to be kind in verse 24. We're to be able to be teach. We're to be able to be patient when wronged. And verse 25 goes on, gentle in correction, in correcting opposition, such that God might grant truth and repentance to those who would seek to be argumentative. And in verse 26, 26, that they might come to their senses and escape the devil by being ensnared by him. These are the fatherly exhortations that Paul brings to his spiritual son. 
and my brothers in Christ, this is what we must do. We must be a better model of these in our lives so that we better project the truth of our Heavenly Father. But we must first realize, as verse 1 began, that this is only possible for those who are in Jesus Christ. Only those who know the saving grace that he has shown them. 27 times in this chapter, Paul makes reference to the Godhead and the things of Scripture which come from salvation. And it's only through a living and abiding relationship with Christ that any of these are possible. This fatherly exhortation is useless to one who is not a servant of the Most High God. So the question becomes, is this you? Is your heart racing at the thought of how you might employ these great exhortations to your children, to others in your family, to the spiritual children that may be in your lives? Are you better, are you ready to better reflect Jesus Christ in all that you do? This is the life of the believer, one in which there is a passion for God in his word. Even being desirous to go back and find these 27 references to the things that fathers are to do and find out how we might better do them to, to better bring the power of the gospel to our families. This is the life of one who understands the wrath to come and understands that only ones who know to flee from this wrath will be saved from it and those who are the ones that live secure lives in Christ. See, we must understand that, that the truth of the power of the gospel from the beginning of Scripture to the end has been the same. And it has been a message to us that we are sinners that are separated from God. And that only by Christ can we be restored. Only by Christ can we understand this message as fathers. Only by deepening and founding ourselves upon that truth and carrying it forward as teachers to our sons such that they might teach others can we grasp and be the fathers that God has called us to be. What glorious truths for us as fathers to pass on to our children. What glorious truths for us as children to help encourage our fathers. And that as members of a family, both individually and as a church spiritually, to recognize these eight glorious fatherly exhortations for us to grow in him. May God be pleased to grant us that growth and strengthen us that we might better live and carry these out so that he would be better glorified.